Welcome to Public Safety Talk Radio, the podcast for all of our heroes of public safety, including law enforcement professionals, firefighters, EMTs, corrections officers, healthcare workers, and more. The show is produced by the POCUA and is founded upon its soundness initiative. This episode is sponsored by the finest service organization, a provider of line of duty death loan protection through many of our POCUA institutions. I am Ken Bader, your host for Public Safety Talk Radio, and yes, I have another great guest. Uh, yeah, I, I was just telling my guests how much I love this particular podcast because there's a plethora of great guests. You know, I probably could do like a 50-episode season uh, instead of just 25 or 26, but let me tell you about the guy that I got with us today. His name is Scott Savage. Uh, Don't call him Savage, Scott. I didn't even say if that was okay, but his name is Scott Savage, and he's the founder of the Savage Training Group for law enforcement, and he's been in law enforcement since 1999, just as important. He's worked in the Bay Area uh, for the Palo Alto Police, the Santa Clara County Sheriffs, um, and the Santa Clara Police out here in California. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Hey, terrific. Hey, you know, most important question, it wasn't on my list of questions. Since um, you're a police officer in Santa Clara, um, do you get free 49ers tickets? Well, I not only don't get free tickets, I've got to work those games. So when everyone else is having a great time, I'm I'm, uh, working some you know, distant land of the stadium, uh, dealing with drunks. Oh, terrific. Well, that, well, that could be fun too, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you don't get to see anything. You got to like DVR and watch the game later. You know, I've, I've gotten to see a couple of cool things over the years and, 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 uh, been to some interesting concerts and stuff like yeah. that and, and got a little close to some of the action, but uh, we actually have some guys that work on the field. Of course, yeah. they're facing the stands. They're not facing the game. So I don't know, if that's a good assignment or bad, that, that seems like a little bit of a tease to me, but uh, no, it's a great agency to work for and blessed to have that opportunity to see kind of behind the scenes of NFL games and major concerts. And yeah, I'm pretty, pretty happy there. Sure. Sure. Well, that, you know, you probably, it's given, given the play of Jimmy Garoppolo the last year, you probably better looking into the stands instead of on the field. Um, did I say that out loud? Hey, I'm a Bears fan. What can I say? Um, <laughs> but let's get to Savage Training Group because uh, not all of our audience is football fans, but I know that they're fans of first responders. So let's talk about the Savage Training Group because I know you founded that in 2018 and I'm curious to hear the particular motivation in starting that program. Well, listen, we're trying to raise the bar of law enforcement training. And I think if we lifted the veil a little bit and gave a behind the scenes look at the way law enforcement officers are trained, you know, speaking globally around uh, the nation, I think many people would be very surprised. And I don't think that people would be necessarily impressed. I think they would be maybe disappointed, shocked, uh, confused at the uh, level of training or the lack of training or the lack of quality training um, available for officers. Um, there's a national debate going on about uh, police training uh, and, and how police officers operate. And a lot of what you see in the field and, and the viral videos has some correlation to the way police officers are trained or not trained, right? There's a huge disparity across the nation, uh, discrepancy around the nation about 
uh, how cops are trained, you know, good, bad, or do they go to long academies, short academies, what is the level of training? So as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer in California, I've been involved in training for years and years and years. Yeah. And it occurred to me that I can do this better, you know, and, and maybe I was blissfully unaware or, or, um, you know, just thought I was pretty, pretty good at this, but, um, sure. teaching and teaching for years, uh, both in service training and for, for private presenters, I knew that there was a huge void that needed to be filled, um, to present quality training to police officers. Once they're out of the Academy, what then, what then, yeah. um, so much of what we see in law enforcement training, um, in my department and in every department around the nation is actually more compliance than it is training. Yeah. Uh, give you an example. Uh, police officers have to qualify with their, their sidearms, their pistols, right? Sure. That qualification sometimes happens four times a year and other times twice a year in other places once a year. Yeah. I don't know about you, but are you good at anything that you do once a year? And what is that? Dep time? Depends on what that is, Scott. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, if I'm... What is that training? They're, yeah. they're, they're shooting at paper targets. Yeah. They're shooting at paper targets under zero stress. They're incentivized to get 100% on that score. And maybe you'll even get a little expert pin. Yeah. Are we incentivizing actual skill? Or are we incentivizing marksmanship? Which is a piece of firearms qualifications, but shouldn't be the, the entirety. So I started looking at all, all sorts of different training programs. Um, and I was dissatisfied with the way I was trained as a police officer. My former agency, I was a sergeant. I went to quote sergeant school, you know, and, and was dissatisfied with that. And I said, you know what, I, I can do this better. So I spent a long time researching it, researching business, researching advertising and researching the content and hiring the best instructors. And I think we've created something very special. It's been very, very successful in the, in the past few years. Um, we're just going a million miles an hour. And it's, it's a real uh, honor, right, to, to receive kudos from people and say that these classes are great. It's the best class I've ever been to. This is teaching something new. But it's, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of studying, a lot of uh, trying to read research papers and embrace evidence-based techniques and, and really learning how to be the best instructors. So um, it's a blessing, it's a passion project, and I'm, I'm just very lucky to be in this position. Yeah, yeah, this, this particular subject is very sincerely intriguing to me. Um, I've never been a police officer, I'm a big supporter of police officers. And through all this, uh, we'll say two polar opposites of defund, and then the defend the police, which I think are both uh, extremely blind in what they are um, asking for, um, at least in my opinion. Uh, I've always advocated, you know, let's, you know, let, let's, let's do something else somewhere in the middle. Let's develop the police. Just from, from your point, uh, from my personal experience in working with law enforcement organizations at times, yeah, I remember working with two completely different uh, entities in a particular state. It wasn't California, uh, but it was two, two different organizations. Um, and one was extremely well run and they were very proud of their training and what they were doing. And here, just a few hundred miles away, there was another law enforcement group 
that you could see that we're, we're just behind the times and the, the former group actually looked down on this other group and they're both cops. And I, as a civilian, I'm thinking, all right, one, what's going on here? Two, you know, can't we, if, if you're, if law enforcement organizations can't get along, you know, how can we, how can we do that in civilian life? And, and can't there be some type of a, a uniform type of instruction throughout the United States? I mean, you know, we, we are the United States after all. I mean, we, we, we put a man on the moon. We can't do this. <laughs> yeah, that speaks to the, the larger point of disparity and the lack of consolidation, right? So, I don't know how many police departments there are in the US, but 40, 50,000, yeah. some, something along those lines. That would be a tall order to try to get all of those separate agencies ranging from 10 member police departments up to many thousand member police departments serving rural, suburban, urban. That would be a very tall order to get all of those organizations thinking the same. Yeah. And because it's so difficult, you will often hear the excuse, well, we serve a different populace and our, mm -hmm. we want to remain local and, and, and that type of stuff. That is avoiding the issue. That, that is really avoiding the issue. The issue is there is no national standard. And agency A is, may uh, have nothing more to do with agency B than they appear the same. They wear the same uniform. And when people say the police are this, Right there, that can't be a true statement because there is such incredible disparity between this and that. We wear a similar uniform and sometimes that's where the similarities end. Right. That's where the similarities end. So I think if, if we, and I'm not sure we, we as a populace, if we hope to get better and stop with the slogans and the, the yelling and the, you know, the argument, and if we hope to, what I, love what you just said, develop the police. Mm -hmm. Love that. I just wrote it down. <laughs> Feel free to use it. Yeah. Love it. No, I, I'm, I'm loving it. If we hope to develop the police into something that is more palatable and more acceptable to the, the population, then we've got to agree on what that is. Right. Like, what does success look like? And who gets to judge that? Is it me? Is it you, Ken? Is it the people down the street? Is it some national body? Who gets to sit on that body? In other words, who gets to tell us what is good and how, what is good and then how will we know when we get there, right? These are the sort of high level questions that need to be asked if we hope to get better. I'm not convinced we do. I'm not convinced as a society, that's what we really, really want. Right, right, yes. <laughs> Again, yeah, I've I, I don't blindly support the defend or defund um, the police. I, I truly believe that there's something in the middle um, that's actually better and harder, frankly. Um, and as I say, it's actually on the back of my public safety talk radio shirt that being pro police and pro change aren't mutually exclusive. Um, that I truly believe that anything, any new programs, any training that's going to first and foremost allow our officers to get home safely to their family, uh, I'm all for that. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's where the change needs to start. I don't know. But I know in your training specifically, 
the first goal is to prevent tragedies, is to save lives. Um, and I'm sure that starts with the officers and also the, the folks that the officers are serving. Is, is that correct? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, listen, my, um, my grandfather was a police officer, he was killed in the line of duty. I understand, have a very real um, gut uh, feeling about what that is to lose um, a family member. Although a man I never met, but his legacy carries on in our family. And so it is near and dear to my heart that not only I want to be safe, I want my friends and colleagues to be safe, but I honestly understand what happens when a police officer is killed. It's horrible. But uh, I, I want to protect cops. But there's the other people that I want to protect. As a matter of sure. fact, it's the reason I became a police officer. Is I want to protect people. I want to help people as, as sort of, you know, Pollyanna as that may, may sound. Yeah. But just wanting to do something does, doesn't cut the mustard. Just, I just want to help people. Well, that, that doesn't do anything. You've really got to get very granular. And one of the major, uh, major things that our industry deals with is how do we deal with a mentally ill in crisis? Yeah. Oftentimes, the mentally ill in crisis are doing something that appears um, animated, that appears that perhaps is dangerous, maybe they're a danger to self or others, but they haven't committed a crime. Mm -hmm. And who is it that gets called to deal with the mentally ill? It's the police, right? And oftentimes, we'll get on scene and the family member will say, you got to help you got to help my family member. He's mentally ill. He's not taking his medications. He's doing X, Y, and Z. Well, do you want him arrested? No, God, no. We want you to take him to the hospital. But interestingly, it's the police who are on scene because what's the public safety agency that would help people and take them to the hospital? Well, gee, that, that sounds like the fire department or the paramedics. And here we look down and we're the police and we're on scene. Yeah. With all the limitations that our career field comes with, we're just the police. We're not clinicians of, of mental health you know professions and, and even if we were what could we do with that information if we all had advanced degrees in you know uh, and could diagnose this mentally ill person and uh, would that do anything for us in the heat of the moment where that person is decompensating is off their meds they're swinging a bat around in a right. crowded downtown area what would that academic information do for us mm -hmm. if we brought a clinical responder and said He's right there. There you go, doc. He's right there. The problem is they're going to ask us to make it safe first. Yeah. Get in the custody and then they'll do whatever treatment they have. Well, that defeats the purpose. So one of the things we really started looking at is what do we do? What, what do we do with the mentally ill in crisis? And furthermore, what if they are barricaded in their house and they've got a gun? Yeah. They want to harm themselves or maybe they fired off around and they're, We've got this standoff going on. I can tell you what would happen in years past. We would get on scene. A man would have a gun to his head. He'd be sitting in his house. He's mentally ill. He wants to harm himself. The family has been taken out. They've said, he's in there. You got to help him. We would try for a little bit to get him out, you know, mm -hmm. negotiate, loud hail him out. And then when he wouldn't come out, you know what we would do? We'd kick down his door. Yeah. We'd go in and get him. But because he had a gun out, we'd have our gun out. Sure. Naturally. And if you think about it, as this armed police officer is meeting this mentally ill man armed with a weapon, they're meeting, they're meeting, how you can imagine what would happen. Mm -hmm. And after enough police officers were harmed by this man and enough mentally ill people were shot by the police, altruistic as they were, wanting to help as they were, yeah. 
I think as an industry, we started to go, we, we got to do something different. Yeah. So one thing we did at the Savage Training Group, we developed a course called Response to the Non-Criminal Barricade. Mm-hmm. By its very title, non-criminal, you know, you could tell this isn't a crime. We don't have a core transaction here, a crime. We got to start with what is the legal foundation? And we developed tactics, policy, uh, best practices, um, there is no science. There is no evidence base we can go to. So we best practices based on our interpretation of the law and developed a, a training course. We have an in-person course. We have an online course that police officers can go to and learn what progressive progressive agencies are doing with this very complex dilemma. Because mm-hmm. there's not always a right and wrong answer. But cops feel like, well, I got to go in. I, I have yeah. to go in. Otherwise, we're going to be liable. And we actually show you the laws which said, and that's not actually true. There are times you'll be liable when you create this special relationship, but you got to know the public duty doctrine. You got to know your state statutory rules. And here's the policies. Here's the, the tactics. And so it's the courses like that have been very successful because people go, Ooh, this is different. This is well-researched. This is um, modern. This is progressive. This is going to help us all be a little safer because sometimes the best thing we can do for that man I'm describing that non-criminal barricade Sometimes yeah. the best thing we can do as the police is to leave. Yep. Will it solve the problem? Not necessarily, but what it won't do is kill him. Right. Or escalate the problem. We, we won't escalate right. the problem. Yeah, that that is so spot on, Scott. Um, yeah, my my wife works in healthcare, and so she has a little bit more of a, a clinical understanding, at least at least more than than I do uh, of mental illness. And we'll watch the news, and we'll we'll see certain situations. And certainly, you know, it's it's one thing if you have somebody who's mentally ill who is waving a knife, waving a gun, waving a bat. Yeah, there, there are some necessary steps and things that are needed from our law enforcement. Um, you know, if for no other reason to protect themselves and to protect everybody else, you know, before um, this unfortunate individual does cause some harm to somebody. Uh, but yeah, it, there's been studies out there and yeah, I agree with this. I think that we put police officers in harm's way that is unnecessary. As I said, it's one thing somebody's waving around a knife. It's a whole different thing if somebody is manic, um, doesn't have a weapon, isn't threatening anybody, and now you're sending people in uniform with weapons. What does that do to somebody? Uh, Where in those cases, it's possible that somebody that has that type of training uh, maybe with police backup, <laughs> but has that type of training that can actually uh, de-escalate the situation, you know, may be a better fit than, than one of our law enforcement professionals. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a tall order to ask any, any other human to try to control the behavior of another human. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm of the, the mindset that, that none of us truly possess the power to de-escalate another human human being, we can offer de-escalation, right? We can say, um, listen, we would love to de-escalate with you, but it actually requires involvement from that other party. It's going to require that person you're describing with the bat to put the bat down and to cooperate with what the officers are saying, turn around, put your hands behind your back, whatever it is. And that's one of the missing pieces and the the realistic piece of of de-escalation that unfortunately, uh, members of the public don't get exposed to. They've never been in the situation of this 
highly tense, volatile, rapidly changing circumstance of trying to deal with a person while also under threat, right? Because the minute you feel that you're under threat and someone's got a weapon, they're like, I'm going to kill you. Well, you're under, yeah. that's definitely a threat. The minute you feel that's that type of feeling, it changes the dynamic for people. And until you've been in that situation a number of times, it, it can be challenging to understand the nuances, right? Because yeah. we can say, well, they should just do this and just do that. Yeah, that, that's a little bit easier said than done. When mm -hmm. you're dealing with human conflict, it's much more complex, much yeah. more gray and, and challenging. But Now a word from our sponsor, the Police Officers Credit Union Association. The POCUA can suggest a credit union that serves public safety professionals in practically every state in the country. One state we definitely have covered is California. The police credit union serves all law enforcement personnel and their civilian co-workers, including volunteers within California, employed by any municipal, county, state, or federal agency or special district. They also serve firefighters, EMTs, and court employees in nine counties within the state. The police credit union has proudly been serving first responders since 1953. For more information about the Police Credit Union, go to thepolicecu.org or call 800-222-1391. To find an institution to serve you in any of the other 49 states, go to policecreditunions.com. And always remember, if you aren't banking with a POCUA credit union, you're just working with an institution that just so happens to serve public safety professionals. And you deserve better. I, one of the most exciting things that I'm seeing uh, that I'm super excited about is our local paramedics here in Northern California and also in other agencies around the U.S. I'm starting to see this. Our local paramedics are now being allowed through their standing orders by their local EMS uh, authorities to use um, medications like Haldol, mm. sedatives to go up and chemically restrain an individual, right? Yeah. This is a game changer. Now this is gonna be a game changer. It's, I don't know exactly how it, it, it works. I have never had the pleasure of dealing with a situation like that. Um, but you're I not, know. You're, you're not trying hell though, Scott? Well, not trying to give people hell. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, maybe recreationally, but no, then continue. No, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'll stick with the tequila. Yeah. <laughs> um, but before I, was a, before I was a cop, I was a paramedic. And that was back in the late 90s. And we, we didn't have that. That wasn't part of our, um, you know, our medications we carried. But locally here where I work in, in Northern California, the medics are now going to be allowed to chemically restrain people. And so I'm interested to see how that works. I think I'm, I'm gaming this out in my head that when we have a person who cannot be controlled, whom we offer de-escalation and they do not accept the offer or for safety reasons, right? Yeah. We don't have the containment control or communication with this person. We have to take action or, or we choose to take action. Um, I envision us maybe using less lethal weaponry against him, not uh, temporarily incapacitating him enough to get him cuffed up and then have a medic come in and chemically restrain this person, a, a quick shot of, of a medication that's going to um, really do kind of what we've been all trying to do and us not having to hold this person down or tie them up in a, a restraint device that maybe can restrict breathing if they're already suffering from medical issues. So right. I'm excited about that. I, I think that might, that's a step in the right direction. Don't know all everything about it, but I, I see that. 
and I see other things on the horizon that are giving me hope. I, I know that sometimes as a police officer in 2021, you're not feeling a lot of yeah. hope, but I'm, I'm seeing a few things on the horizon that are giving me hope. Yeah, yeah, I I appreciate hearing that. It gives me some hope. You know, I we I've I've had you know plenty of conversations. Yeah, you you feel for the the mentally ill, uh, but then there's also the the aspect of you know, all right, it's the mentally ill individual certainly has rights, but what about the rights of everybody just trying to go to work? Uh, and so they they have a right to not be confronted by the mentally ill too. Uh, but before going down that rabbit hole again, um, let's let's go back to the training. Uh, because I'm very intrigued, what makes your training so different? What what brings what you're teaching to more of the modern era of, of policing? Well, I think, you know, the reason that our students tell us that they enjoy the training that they go to um, is because it is well-researched. It is actually engaging, not just saying it's engaging. It's meaningful to them. And it it is presented in a way that helps embed information into long-term memory, right? It's mm -hmm. not just a short-term thing. Hey, this is the answer. Guys go, okay, got it. And then they walk out. It's not the, uh, the death by PowerPoint training. That <laughs> are used to. Yeah. And, and what is it about PowerPoint that they don't like? Is it, do they have something against Microsoft? Well, no, <laughs> it's because, you know, a lot of law enforcement training is, is nothing more then some cop who got voluntold to, to do the yeah. training creates a hundred slide PowerPoint and damn it, he's gonna go through every slide and he's yeah. gonna read those slides to you and nothing- Point by point, word oh. for word. <laughs> it's, it's like a slow, painful death. And, and you know, the minute you sat in a class like that, you tune out mm -hmm. because you go, this is not a lot of work went into this. Yeah. It seems like the instructor doesn't really care. Why would I as a student care? I, I think I what don't. goes off in my head is, you know what, can you print those out? Because I can read the freaking slides myself yeah. <laughs> at the bar. <laughs> and, and is reading and, and, and listening, are those high forms of learning? No, it's very little learning. So we've really embraced the modern science of learning and, and we try to use, you know, fancy instructor words like interleaving and spaced retrieval and desirable difficulties and all this stuff that, that the research is out there. There's a body of research. There's entire careers made of, of course, instructing and how people learn. And we've done the heavy lifting and the work and embraced all that stuff. And then we try to present things in a way that is a little bit more fun, a little bit more engaging. One of the, the behemoths we took on is in California here is FTO training, field training officer training. So guys get out of the academy, they get sent to an FTO, field training officer. Well, we teach the FTOs how to be FTOs. And that class had a horrible reputation in California. And I know because I went to some. Yeah. And so we took that on and we just redesigned it from the ground up. And the first thing we said is, let's not use any PowerPoint in a five-day class. This will blow people's minds, right? <laughs> Instead, let's teach. And let's teach other people how to teach. Let's teach yeah. the FTOs how to be great instructors, right? And it's just been tremendous, tremendously successful and I think what just makes us different is it's very intentional, very modern, very well-researched with a, a goal in mind. And we're always asking ourselves, did learning occur? Yeah. And if learning did occur, are they going to be able to retrieve and recall this information when it really matters a year from now, 
in the middle of the night during some crisis, right? And we think we're onto something, we think we're successful and, and uh, it's really through the hard work of all of our instructors and the course designers and, and all the researchers that are out there that we, we pull from. We pull from whoever will talk to us, you know? We have an interview and interrogation course called Modern Interview and Interrogation because the research is out there saying the way cops are trained to do interrogations has and can and is well documented to lead to false confessions. Yeah. Ouch. Um, that's not good. So we redesigned that from the from the ground up and and brought in every expert that would talk to us, um, guys from Canada. We brought in the Innocence Project and said we we got to talk to you. We want to know when you DNA exonerate someone, this person did not do it. You got them out of prison. Was there anything in the interview that, that seemed off? And, and how does that compare to the research out there? And, and so I, I just think that we were just a little bit more intentional about things. And, and the proof is in the pudding. These, the, we're a private company. The Savage Training Group is a private company. Agencies either send their people to our courses or they don't. And if it was garbage and it, it wasn't worthwhile, they, they'd stop paying. Wouldn't come right? back, yeah. Yeah. Um, so many great points there, Scott. Yeah. The, the being, being the true crime uh, category director for podcast magazine, you know, going back to some of these cases from the seventies and the eighties, you know, there's, there's more than there's more cases than I'd like to admit that go back and say, you know, did we really catch the right guy? And some of them go back to, to those interrogation techniques. In fact, I just covered one not too long ago. Uh, but, you know, probably the most important question that um, I'll ever ask you is how much money did you save by not having to, on ink and paper, by not having to print out all of those slides and PowerPoint by not using it? <laughs> <laughs> we saved a ton of money and then we spent it all on research so yeah well that well it, it seems like that was money you know reallocated yeah. you know really well but yeah i i i really appreciate this conversation because as a civilian who staunchly supports law enforcement but also feels that there needs to be some change not just for the community but for the police officers themselves um it's giving me some hope so i i appreciate that you know with with all of the the fun insanity that we've got going out there and and some some of it just being a blind opinion um yeah what 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 do you think policing is going to look like in 2030 you know what yeah we already talked a little bit about it with the hell doll and maybe the the different people on scene and so forth and and you're kind of leading the charge here with some some new age training i'll say what what might the police force of 2030 look like you know there's a lot of smart folks working on this um there's a lot of uh, of uh, equally minded folks that are trying to kind of, like you said, develop the police. I love it. Ken Bader said it here. <laughs> I actually did a whole episode on it in season one, but love you it. know, you can go back and look at it. But anyway, I'll continue. It. <laughs> you know, I, and I think for, for those among us who are uh, wanting to be intentional about this and who are interested in law enforcement being the, the most high performing law enforcement officers they can be, I think that there's several things, several things uh, that we can do. And if we're just gonna say, hey, that defund the police, that's not right and it shouldn't be, and we're not gonna present a plan back, 
um, don't think that's going to don't think that's going to help us because our industry is going to change one way or the other, mm-hmm. either with our participation as the practitioners, right? The folks doing it. I am a working police officer. I do this. Right. Either with our participation or not. I I read the tea leaves and think things are a changing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so we need to be involved in that conversation. But yeah. to just fight the defund, you know, thing and say, well, that's that's nonsense. That's not a plan. Just arguing. Yeah. My if I were going to put forth an idea, a plan, a framework, it would it would involve um, a few different steps. Mm-hmm. First, I would say would be to clarify our role as police officers. Let's become crystal clear on what we as a society believe the role of police officers should be. Example. Should police officers be generalists in the sense that they are going to handle everything? Mental yeah. illness, drugs, homeless issues, human trafficking. Um, they are, when the dog catcher is not on in the middle of the night, they call <laughs> police, right? when a water main breaks in the middle of the street, they send the cops, go check it out, see if we need to call the public works folks out. And the list goes on and on. This is my 21st year as a police officer. Every single year, they add on an additional thing that I am to have expertise in, right? Mm -hmm. 2001, it was terrorism. Then it became, uh, after the Mumbai attacks, MACTAC. Now we're going to deal with multiple armed assailants. Human trafficking, recognizing that. And the list, it just goes on and on and on. What happens when we ask someone to be an expert at everything? They become an expert at nothing, right? Yeah. There is... Huge research into why being a generalist can sometimes be better than being a specialist in certain circumstances. But in the patrol world, right, the uniformed patrol world, we need police officers to be good at maybe about 10 different things. Yeah. Dealing with armed suspects, dealing with resisting suspects, basic investigations, and just let's get crystal clear on what the role is and stop saying the police are the answer to everything. Yeah. The world's problem solvers. We don't possess the power to solve all problems. Let's, you know, stop, yeah. stop pretending. I, I completely agree with you. I think that just uh, as an outsider, that police officers are asked to do way too many things. Um, it seems like it's it's the catch-all for city workers, and that's the last thing that it should be. Um, yeah, if if there's a homeless person, you know, at the end of my block. Um, certainly I want somebody to come out as a, as a taxpayer paying for services in my city. Um, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the cops. Uh, if some, if somebody's, you know, breaking into my back window, um, while I'm sitting with my firearm on the phone with 911, I want the police to come. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. And, it, and it, isn't that's the funny thing is sometimes cops talk about, well, it's us. And then there's the civilians and then this kind of stuff. But it's yeah. like, Last time I checked, though, we all have houses, and I, yeah. when I call my local cops, I have expectations of them, right? <laughs> so I want them to be really well-trained, but I, I think that's the first thing, is to clarify our rules as a society. I think that the next thing would be to embrace technology. Um, if you look at um, what is being done with drones as first responders, I think that is amazing stuff. Now, these are expensive expensive operations, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know how every little department could afford this. Maybe we need to be consolidating, but um, agencies, um, some agencies are using drones as first responders where the 911 call comes out and they launch a drone to go take a look at it. Well, it may sound a little space agey or big brothery, but Mm -hmm. just from the standpoint that, you know what? 
the less armed conflict we right. have, the better. And if a drone can get up above somebody and take a look at the situation and deliver information back to the responding officers who may be pulled around the corner and are looking at the video feed and they go, Ooh, that guy does have a gun. If that dude shoots at the drone, good. Yeah. Good <laughs> That's we good can, intel. You we, know. Can lo- we can lose the drone. We can always buy another one of those, but uh, the, 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 drone, the drone isn't going to sue anybody. <laughs> the drone becomes a sensor. The drone becomes an intelligence gathering device that feeds more information to the decision makers, be it the on-duty patrol sergeant or the responding officer, to make quality decisions. Um, now we are, we're, you know, if we get a call of maybe a man with a gun walking uh, on a levee or walking in a park, mm-hmm. we have to send cops and we've got to get close enough to see what's going on. Um, if you don't have a drone, I would say buy yourself the best binoculars you can. If you're a police officer, yeah. buy the best binoculars you can. Get out, get out of the effective range of whatever weapon system we think this guy has and take a look at this guy. Try to gauge intention. Try to gauge, is he hostile? What is he holding? Can, what more information can we develop? Um, slow down, right? Other technologies being used, like I mentioned, the paramedics, you know, may, perhaps using chemical restraints, yeah. less lethal equipment probably needs to be, um, every car needs to be armed with, uh, you know, uh, sage guns or, or uh, less lethal shotguns and, and those right. technologies, bowler wrap, those, those, let's embrace all that. Let's give cops tools. Um, anything that can be used at standoff distance, like a drone, uh, is probably a good yeah. thing. Yeah, clarifying well and using technology, I think, are, are huge. Um, I, w- I would also say become officers need to become more educated about the law. I am uh, never, uh, never ceases to amaze me how, how little police officers know about core laws, such as the public duty doctrine, which, unlike what most police officers says, clearly states, clearly states, and, and one can Google the public duty doctrine, that police officers don't have an affirmative duty to provide police protection to individuals, but rather to the to the public at large, they do. And why is that so important? Because it helps cops make better decisions. Anytime you rush into something, you run through the door, you, you rush into to chaos thinking I had to, well, naturally your decision-making is about this big because I had to go here. I, I didn't have any other choice. Yeah. When you really start to get educated about the law, you understand you have a variety of choices. And I might go get that guy, but I'm going to wait till I get back up here. And I'm going to wait till we get in a better position. I'm not just going to jump into any fray and make unplanned, unrehearsed, panicky decisions. So that would be the third thing I would suggest if, if we as a society hope to um, develop the, maybe the last one or two I, I would say is let's embrace science. Um, and, and all that it has to offer, what it tells us about interrogations, what the research tells us about human behavior. Um, let's embrace all of the, the other domains that are out there. Why do we in the police think we're just so special, right? Because mm-hmm. there's actually very little research and, and evidence-based practices in police work, but let's embrace what's out there, you know, with sports, with medicine, with the military, with whoever's willing to help us do this job. And then lastly, let's improve, or to use your words, develop training. Mm. Let's raise the bar on training. It's, it's not good enough to shoot at paper targets. Mm-hmm. It's not good enough to have cops just stare at PowerPoint screens and call that training. It's just not good yeah. enough. 
this job is the most complex job around. It's the hardest to get right. And the consequences for getting it wrong are unforgivable. So I think a plan like that is, is something a little bit more um, eloquent, elegant than, than saying just, I don't like the defund police. Yeah. So that's, that's my two cents. And there's a lot of other smart folks out there that, that have great ideas on how to move our industry forward. Sure. Sure. Yeah. The, you know, I think of when I think of the defund and I think of some of the issues out there and some of the anger for incidents that have happened, whether they're right or wrong, I'm not going to go into it in, in this episode, but what I think of is, is what are some of the things that have happened before that incident? Um, where, you know, police officers are, have PTSD, they have problems in their marriage, they have problems with finances, um, they have, they have other issues before they've even put on the uniform that day. Um, so you're already having somebody that, you know, may not be at his or her best going on the job. Um, I think that, you know, somewhere where the answer is, is, training is that development is that let's take care of the officer before he or she puts on the uniform so that maybe uh, as you alluded to in you know the situation of you know maybe I shouldn't be running in there just yet you know maybe I should wait for backup maybe maybe there's more of a containment strategy here um, that makes sense at least for the next five minutes um, rather rather than you know running to 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 the danger uh, because I think that's that's what uh, what I need to do so a lot of a lot of that Scott is common sense and we're not big on common sense here in the United States states here in this century so i don't know if that'll happen yeah you're right <laughs> it's in short supply right yeah <laughs> and it only stands to reason that um you know we police officers th th what is being criticized if you break down the essence of what's being criticized in this national narrative about police operations what is being criticized is decision making mm -hmm. it's simply decision making choosing to do this or do that choosing to strike this person, to shoot this person, to chase this or not, right? Mm -hmm. And so we want police officers to be expert decision makers. Um, no other career field suffers this type of hyper, hyper uh, being under a microscope. Mm -hmm. For instance, firefighters, firefighters deal with burning buildings, burning homes. Do, is there anyone inspecting each individual firefighter's performance to see, could you have saved that room of the house that burned down? Could you yeah. have gotten there just a little quicker? Could you have uh, operated the hose in a different pattern, the hose pattern, to put out the fire just on this little area, not that area, and that would have saved the roof, which would have led to here. Yeah. We think you did this because you didn't like that house. We think you <laughs> because you were angry. Yeah. We think you did this because there was malice there and we went back to your training and showed you were trained better. So we're going to hold you now criminally liable for arson or, or vandalism against that house or not extinguishing a fire quick enough, right? Yeah. It, that seems asinine what I'm describing, but that's very similar to how we look at police operations, right? Yeah. And so we want cops to be expert decision makers. How do we get there? Well, there's a lot of great training out there, but to your point, emotional intelligence, you know, emotional intelligence, um, 
an inner calmness, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're in California, so I might start talking about yoga and eating. Yeah, no, let's, let's not go. You know, I, 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 I feel I, compelled. I, yeah, I feel, don't don't go into into the woo woo stuff. Yeah. I know we were both in California, and yeah. I can I can get you in touch with my gal at Yoga for First Responders if that's oh, what see? you want to talk about. But yeah. <laughs> But I think, you know, in all seriousness, I think, you know, there's obviously something to getting enough sleep, which, yeah. and, you know, I, I want to call out police administrators across the nation. This is dangerous, but I do. I want to call them out and I just want to give them a quick challenge for any of them who are listening. We're like, how dare you call me out? If you're a police leader of some kind, you're a chief or whatever, do you value your officers getting sleep? Of course you do, right? And, and maybe you've instituted some new programs where you bring in somebody to talk about eating right, doing yoga, working out, getting sleep. Okay. At that training that you planned for your officers, what time did it start? Eight o'clock in the morning, right? Yeah. Okay. Were your night shift guys there at eight o'clock in the morning? Yeah. Did you completely disrupt their sleep patterns to tell them they need to get more sleep? Chief, is there any reason that couldn't have been started later on in the afternoon? Just that simple tweak. Yeah. To, could all shifts, because remember, 24 hours a day, there's cops out there, and the vampire guys that are working at night, that, that's not helping them to say, come on in at 8 o'clock. Yeah. Let's start that a little bit less. Now, that's a real meaningful thing that you can do today. Start your training at a later hour to accommodate yeah. the sleep cycles of everyone, not just the folks that work day shift. That would be a, a real thing. But I don't think a lot of agencies want to do it. It costs more money because you're going to get into that night differential. Yeah. It's not as easy. Oh, the day shift guys don't. That's something you can do. And I challenge you to do it. Don't just talk about how police officers need more sleep. Let's do something that's meaningful. Let's help them get the sleep that they need. Or for the vampire guys, you know, to tell them they don't have to come to the training. You'll just print out the PowerPoint slides. <laughs> Well, yeah, such a great conversation. I, I love all those ideas. I think my favorite is the drone idea. Maybe we can, you know, there's all these tech guys. Maybe Elon Musk or somebody can create a drone with some kind of Haldol dart where you could just shoot it right from above and, and it'll save so many problems. Okay, go <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A, a machine throwing darts. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. But yeah, most important question probably is where can our audience find you, Scott? Where can they find um, the Savage Training Group and the and on all the things that you offer? Uh, go to SavageTrainingGroup.com. Um, there is definitely some free uh, PDFs, some free downloads, and tons of videos you can watch and learn a little bit about um, what we're doing. We're based here in San Jose, California, which is um, in Northern California, but um, mm -hmm. we've been lucky enough to be invited to now start presenting in other states, and we're super excited about that. So if you're a police agency and you're looking for something a little bit more modern, a little bit more intentional with the training, some cutting-edge stuff, why don't you have us come to your agency? You can also look at there's some online training we have. And I know online training stinks. I get it. But we <laughs> did our best to make it look cool and film it and put music in it and try to jazz it up. But a couple of our most popular courses, we gave an online option in there so that folks can watch it in the middle of, of midnight shift. And then, and if you'd like to learn, just uh, connect with me. I spend uh, most of my time on social media and LinkedIn. I think that's you know, a little bit more uh, professional maybe than some of the other ones out there so that that's where you can connect with me personally or or savage training group.com to learn about kind of what what we're doing here and 
Um, thank you so much for having me, and, and this has been a blast. And I think we solved the world's problems yeah. in like half hour. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it was all my pleasure. It was so insightful. I, I love a lot of the ideas, many of which, um, as a civilian that supports law enforcement, I've heard for the first time, and I'm really pleased to see that we're, we're making some progress there. Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb uh, and say that uh, when our audience looks you up and looks at this training, that there won't be one PowerPoint slide that they can grab from that. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Scott, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode of Public Safety Talk Radio. And we will be back with you next week with another great guest. Public Safety Talk Radio is produced by the POCUA. POCUA is a consortium of financial institutions serving law enforcement as well as other first responders and public safety professionals. To learn more about our association and to find one of our credit unions or service providers near you, go to www.policecreditunions.com. And always remember, if you aren't working with one of our POCUA credit unions, you're just banking with an institution that just so happens to serve first responders. As a public safety professional, you and your family deserve better. Find a POCUA credit union today.